This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with historian Dr. Alessandro Antonello. Alessandro is a senior research fellow at Flinders University, and he joined me to talk all about the history and politics of Antarctica, as well as another hot summer on the coldest continent on Earth. Alessandro has written a piece for Inside Story and also a book released last year called The Greening of Antarctica. So I'd love to welcome now to the show Dr. Alessandro Antonello, and thanks so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Amy. It's Good really to be with you. Oh, it's great to have you in all the way from South Australia. <laughs> uh, I wish it was sunnier here, but I'm stuck inside, of course. <laughs> I, absolutely. Um, I I did. I have been following you on Twitter, and I noticed that you were at Melbourne University for a, a little while. Um, there. And I often have Emma Shortus on my program to talk about American politics. And I wonder whether you ever had anything to do with Emma. Uh, Yes. Uh, Emma wrote a fantastic PhD at the University of Melbourne on the history of Antarctica too. And I was um, a a latecomer, but I was very happy to help um, in supervising her. Um, Though, of course, she's such a brilliant historian, she didn't need much supervising. (laughs) She's very, very self-motivated and a fantastic part of this show. So it's great to hear that uh, we've got two fantastic historians associated with this show. And uh, I did notice on your bio that you were awarded a DECRA um, fellowship, which is a really um, important thing for anyone who is in academia. But for those of us who don't know, what um, is the DECRA fellowship and why were you awarded it? The Australian Research Council uh, has a system of fellowships and grants that it awards to Australian university academics. Um, And there are three different fellowships for different stages of academic careers. So DECRA stands for, um, sort of very unlovely way, Discovery Early Career Researcher Award. Um, And so I'm an early career historian, a researcher. I got my PhD in 2014. And these awards are awards of fellowships are designed to give young researchers uh, uh, three years of um, time to do their research on a specific topic. Uh, my my research project for the DECRA is moving away a bit from Antarctica, uh, which I've been working on for about ten years now, um, to a similar and overlapping questions relating to the history of ocean governance uh, across the world since the end of the Second World War. So it takes in similar issues about how uh, we think about environments, how scientists think about environments and work on them, and how those ideas um, and knowledge about the environment translate into uh, international relations, international diplomacy, how treaties participate in that knowledge in really interesting ways. And so that's, I've done a lot of work now, that's basically what my book is about to some extent um, uh, for Antarctica. And that's and so I'm really interested in oceans at the global scale um, in that area. Indeed. Well, it is very relevant, isn't it, to Antarctica? Because I, when I was reading through 
um, your book, The Greening of Antarctica, something um, stood out to me, which I just wanted to ask about before we delve into some of the complexity. And um, it probably is a good opening for this area because Antarctica, as we all know, is kind of a special place because it's not like there's a kind of government with a population of people. It's, um, you know, a very remote place and it's a highly contested environment and has been for a number of decades. And um, the 20th century was obviously a pivotal point for Antarctica. But in your book, you kind of look through and and, um, take us through the different treaties that were negotiated. And of course, um, one of the the most important ones was the Antarctic Treaty in the 50s and 60s. Um, And it was interesting to note that I'm not sure if it was that treaty or another, so I'd be interested if you can correct me, um, that when the treaty was devised, it it applied to land but not to sea. Certainly. So the Antarctic Treaty, which was signed in 1959, uh, does actually only apply to land and not the high seas. Uh, There's a lot of... I mean, thankfully, I'm not a lawyer, so I'll try (laughs) not to get too much into the finicky details. Um, But the high seas have uh, historically over centuries been sort of lawless places, places where, um, you know, pirates, but also like, uh, you know, where empires can sail their ships, where merchants can sail their ships without um, being under the jurisdiction of of a government or, a you know, a a monarch uh, for the early modern period. And so this idea of the high seas is uh, is centuries old and was uh, you know, it was carried into the Antarctic Treaty um, as a way of protecting rights. Um, there is a bit of geopolitics around that because in the 50s, countries like the United States and the Soviet Union, um, they, they have a very big interest in maintaining the freedom of the high seas because they have massive globe-spanning navies and they want to be able to go everywhere. Whereas smaller countries like Australia have a bit more of an interest in perhaps um, bringing law to parts of the ocean that were previously lawless. And in fact, I mean, not to get too too distracted, but um, at at this very moment, despite the pandemic, um, there is a major uh, effort in international diplomacy right now to negotiate a treaty for protection of biodiversity in the high seas. And that would be a really massive um, achievement of international law to bring much more law, basically, to what have previously been lawless spaces. Yeah, and the ocean is not just a kind of massive body of water. This is an essential um, part of the world and a really important ecosystem full of uh, amazing animals, fish, and um, of course, some beautiful mammals and seals and penguins and um, polar bears who, Mm -hmm. you know, you obviously utilise the ocean um, to to a very important extent in this area. And also the ocean um, is becoming more and more, uh, I guess, voluminous given that the ice uh, glaciers over there have been melting at increasing rates. So it's it's interesting and kind of really surprising to think that no one thought the ocean around the land wouldn't count. <laughs> It's really important as well to remember that the Antarctic is not just a continent of ice. It's mm. it's a whole region that takes in the Southern Ocean. I mean, the Southern Ocean gets its identity. Um, you know, this is the the problem is we talk about the Southern Ocean in Australia as being all the water south of Australia, but um, in sort of scientific 
oceanographical terms, the Southern Ocean is the cold ocean that completely surrounds the Antarctic continent. And it's much colder than uh, oceans to the north. Uh, and it, it, it's part of the, the whole system of Antarctica. Um, and we need to look to the ocean actually to get uh, details about, for example, uh, how the warming of the ocean is affecting um, the ice sheet, for example. It's not just increasing air temperature, it's increasing ocean temperature. And also it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a highly interconnected system and we have to look at it that way. Exactly. Um, and it was interesting to read your piece in Inside Story um, to hear about the different, I guess, access points of Antarctica, because there are um, a number of countries that are located, I guess, relatively close to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you re- reference there the Argentine Antarctic station Esperanza, um, which you say recorded a temperature of 18.3 degrees on the 6th of February in 2020. Um, that's like pretty balmy for Melbourne sometimes. <laughs> yes, and I mean, it's pretty balmy for the Antarctic. Yeah. Uh, I think it's important, obviously, Antarctica is a cold place, but it is important to remind people that in summer, in the height of summer, even though temperatures can remain low in the full sunlight. You know, you do need to take off your jumper in Antarctica if you're doing hard work in summer. (laughs) Um, uh, The Antarctic Peninsula uh, is often called the banana belt of Antarctica, which is sort of a a lovely term to remind people that it's relatively warmer than the rest of Antarctica. Uh, It stretches uh, well above the Antarctic Circle uh, towards South America. And it's sort of marine climate uh, means that uh, it can remain a bit warmer. So undoubtedly, the 18 degrees at um, Esperanza and I think it was 20 degrees a few days later at Marambio, uh, you know, those are undoubtedly very warm and, you know, they're obviously record-setting temperatures, um, which is com- absolutely worrying. Um, but they do differ um it's important as well to remember that Antarctica is regionally differentiated. I think we can often see it as just one big blob of ice at the bottom of the world, but it's actually a very, it's a very complex region. Um, it's geologically complex. So the Antarctic Peninsula is very mountainous, uh, whereas uh, the area of Antarctica south of Australia, for example, is the largest part of Antarctica, East Antarctica, and it's, you know, the bulk of the ice sheet. It's far less mountainous. It's much, much colder. Uh, the winds are much stronger. Um, so it's important to remember how Antarctica is differentiated. Exactly, yeah. Some, I'm sure a lot of us would, when we picture it in our minds and perhaps we're not fortunate enough to have visited um, would just think, oh, you know, lots of ice, mm-hmm. lots of cute animals. Um, yeah, but there, there must be a huge amount of diversity given that temperature difference that you're describing. Um, and it is a really large area. Could you kind of put it into context for us in terms of how substantial the continent of Antarctica is? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, I think one way of sort of thinking about Antarctica is not just as a two-dimensional continent, which of course it is. I mean, I think it's fourth or fifth largest, so I don't have the exact number in my head. Fifth. Um, uh, fifth, exactly. So it's, you know, it's a very, you know, it's a continent. So I mean, that's the that's very important to emphasise. But I think it's also really important to emphasise the size of Antarctica as a in three dimensions. So in fact, um, the Antarctic ice sheet is the largest 
uh, body of ice in the world. It contains about uh, 90% of the world's ice. And its average thickness is two kilometres. Its wow. thickest point is over four kilometres. I mean, so this is, uh, uh, you know, a massively thick body of ice. It's not just, uh, you know, it's not it's not icing on the cake. <laughs> um, and in fact, it's so, the, the ice sheet is so large that it actually, and it's therefore so heavy, that it actually depresses the land underneath it. So there is continental bedrock underneath, obviously, Um but that is, in fact, uh, at its deepest point is, you know, well under, uh, very, very far under current sea level. And um, the other thing to think about the geography, the physical geography of Antarctica is to go back again to what I said about its sort of three, uh, its regions. So there, um, geographers and scientists often speak of Antarctica in terms of three main big regions, East Antarctica. So that's the area, as I mentioned, to the south of Australia. Uh, West Antarctica and the peninsula. Um, West Antarctica is really uh, perhaps the most uh, dynamic and interesting part of the continent at the moment because the ice sheet, the Antarctic, the part of the Antarctic ice sheet that covers East Antarctica is what is known as marine grounded. And so that means that the ice meets uh, the ocean. Uh, sorry, that where the ice meets the bedrock is below sea level, which means that a warming sea can slowly undermine uh, the ice sheet at its foundations. Whereas in, <clears throat> excuse me, whereas in East Antarctica, most of uh, the East Antarctic ice sheet is grounded above sea level. Um, and when you look at, um, you know, if you go, people can search online for these images. Uh, when you look at the bedrock topography of Antarctica, you can see how, um, you know, there are massive mountain ranges underneath the East Antarctic ice sheet and under the West Antarctic ice sheet, uh, you know, a very, very deep uh, submarine canyon kind of things. Um, so it's really, yeah, it's really important to see um, not just a 2D, but a really deep 3D continent. Indeed. It's so interesting to hear you talk about the different elements. Um, and you also reference it in your article when you were talking about uh, a glacier in the West Antarctic ice sheet uh, called the Thwaites Glacier. And um, you talk about this thing called a grounding line, um, which is the place where glacial ice meets continental rock. Um, and it's as you say, you've just mentioned there that um, it's so sensitive to water temperature um, and you talk about the fact that if it were to fully melt, that uh, West Antarctic ice sheet would add three to six metres to global sea levels, which is kind of hard to wrap your head around. Um, but you did talk about the fact that you've gone over there yourself, um, no doubt for research and perhaps for pleasure, Um but, yeah, I was interested in you and your experience going to the different parts of Antarctica that you reference in your article, um, particularly an example like when you're talking about Hope Bay, um, which is a, an Antarctic hotspot that's been in the news, and um, whether you what your kind of experience was of that and whether the kind of significant concerns and alarm that's and alarms that have been raised um, around that area are warranted in terms of uh, global warming. 
Certainly. Well, I'll first talk about the Thwaites Glacier, just to give a yeah. bit of background on that. Um, so I haven't been to Th the Thwaites Glacier. And in fact, um, there's a really interesting, I mean, there's a really his interesting history here with um, that particular area of West Antarctica. Um, so West Ant the West Antarctic ice sheet contains as much ice as the Greenland ice sheet, um, to put that in perspective. And um, that area where the Thwaites Glacier is, is actually part of the area, the only part of Antarctica which hasn't had a territorial claim made over it. And we can get back to that a bit later. Mm. Um, partially because it's a very, very inaccessible area. It's a very difficult area to access in Antarctica. Very difficult. Um, it's very, very far from um, major any major continental landmass, um, which also means that there's not been much research done on it or comparatively um, over the you know many decades there's been less research that's changed in recent in the last decade because people have seen uh, the potential danger of these marine grounded glaciers so Thwaites the Pine Island glacier which is next to it and which flow into the Amundsen Sea and so you know as a historian who studied the history of glaciology it was actually wonderful to learn that these scientists finally had these um, video images of the grounding line. But as I mentioned in the article, I couldn't watch it because I was on a ship with fairly poor internet connectivity. <laughs> um, that ship, so it wasn't, so to get to the second part of your question, um, uh, this summer was in fact my first trip to Antarctica, which was a great um, sort of great professional moment for me as well as a wonderful uh, uh, moment in my life. You know, as a historian, I have um, I rely on archives, which are held all around the world, but aren't held in Antarctica. And in fact, my research has been interested in how people who haven't even been to Antarctica manage and make decisions about it. Mm. So, but thankfully, you know, it was really wonderful to be able to have the opportunity to go there. And it was it was tied to my work, um, tangentially, but tied because I was asked by the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators to be an observer on a tourist ship. So that organisation, which goes by its acronym IATO, um, is, is a, a, a member-based organisation and most companies that send tourist vessels to Antarctica are members of this organisation. And IATO um, builds upon the regulations passed within the Antarctic Treaty System um, they build upon it to make a framework to ensure that tour, uh, tourist cruises in Antarctica are safe, which is really important in such a dangerous environment, and that they're environmentally uh, sensitive, that they, uh, that they are not contributing to environmental damage in Antarctica, which is, uh, it might seem that you can't harm a block of ice, but, you know, it's a very fragile eco ecosystem and human impacts are very can be very substantial. So I was on a, a large tourist ship, and um, it also just by chance happened to be my birthday a few days after, so I couldn't say no to being in Antarctica on my birthday. <laughs> and um, uh, most tourist ships uh, only visit the Antarctic Peninsula, uh, which I mentioned as the banana belt. They can visit mm. it because it's relatively ice-free in summer and increasingly ice-free in summer. Um, there's a bit more land that uh, tourists can actually land on, um, whereas in East Antarctica, for example, the coast is can be fundamentally inaccessible, um, even if you could get to it past the sea ice, whereas in summer in the Antarctic Peninsula, 
there's not as much sea ice. Interestingly, um, I was told by uh, some of the senior officers on the ship that um, they would normally not expect to be able to get into Hope Bay. So it was very lucky that a ship of our size could enter Hope Bay, but sad because it basically required Hope Bay to be essentially ice-free when it should have at least a bit of ice in it. Um, there were various reasons for that that weren't just climate change. Um, there was a very massive iceberg blocking the entrance to the channel, which would otherwise um, be filled with large icebergs. So we were very lucky in that sense, um, uh, lucky in, a, in an unlucky way. Mm. But um, as I say at the opening of that piece, it was also just fantastic from a historian's point of view, not just sort of a, a naturalist's point of view, because Hope Bay is a fascinating site of Antarctic history. Uh, there was briefly a British base there um, after the end of the Second World War, and uh, it's currently the site of uh, an Argentine station. Esperanza is the Spanish word for hope. And um, there was, in fact, a shooting, a, a small shooting um, between Argentine and British sailors in 1952 because Britain and Argentina and, in addition, Chile um, claim the same plot of territory in Antarctica and so therefore have this territorial conflict which on, on only this one occasion led to gunfire. So it was really wonderful to be there in this very historic place. Mm. And so given, I guess, how um, inhospitable parts of Antarctica are, does that mean that there aren't, I guess, many people at those stations during the kind of depths of winter um, that, you know, have the coldest climates of the year? Yes, it's, this has really changed over history, as you might imagine, because of things like just, you know, technological developments and remote sensing means mm. that fewer people are needed at these bases over winter. It's really worth emphasising, actually, that um, the Antarctic Peninsula has the densest coverage of scientific stations in Antarctica. Um, you know, the uncharitable way of looking at it is that um, countries can build a base in the Antarctic Peninsula on the cheap and therefore gain entry um, as voting members of the Antarctic Treaty System. Mm. Um, so it's a uh, – there are, you know – Argentina, Chile and Britain to begin with have stations in the peninsula, but countries like Poland, Brazil, Peru, uh, Korea, um, China, South Korea rather, China, um, several others uh, have bases um, in this very area, you know, in this, in this sort of the, on the peninsula itself and the sort of archipelago of islands around it. Indeed. And so... Oh, go ahead. No, keep going. It's all good. Oh, you know, so in summer, it's relatively easy to access. Not all of the bases in the peninsula are year-round. Um, so this differs to, let's say, East Antarctica, you know, much more difficult, much larger area. Um, Australia is one of only very few countries that have bases in Antarctica. I'm uh, sorry, East Antarctica. Um, you know, much colder environment, all of these things. Um, and so... Um, Overwinter, for example, overwintering used to be a much bigger deal. It still is a very big deal, but spending your, win your winter during the long single night um, in Antarctica, um, not, many, not many scientists do that anymore. It's mostly the tradespeople that are necessary to maintain the stations, to maintain the instruments that are 
you know, linked into satellites sending data back so someone doesn't need to be there to collect the data. Mm. Um, I was interested that Australia has three permanent uh, bases or stations over in Antarctica because the most, I guess, visible or famous of the three that I'm aware of is Casey Station. Um, Where is Casey Station located? Is that in East Antarctica? Yeah, so all... Um, of Australia's three continental bases are in what Australia claims as the Australian Antarctic Territory, which covers most of East Antarctica. So the three stations are Mawson Station, uh, Davis Station and Casey Station. Mawson was the first. Uh, it's, It's very far to the west of Western Australia, so really at the bottom of the Indian Ocean. Uh, it was established in 1954, so that was the first base. And it and it's uh, the oldest continuously operating scientific station south of the Antarctic Circle. So that's what the Antarctic Division tells us. Mm. Um, Davis was opened in 1957. Um, and Casey, Casey technically opened in 1969, but it was really a, a replacement station from a nearby station called Wilkes, which Australia inherited or took over from the United States in 1959. Um, Casey is, uh, I'm probably going to get my geography mixed up, Casey's in the Vestfold Hills, again, sort of to the south of Australia is sort of the generic way of putting it, but that's a big space. Um, And as I said, Mawson is far to the west and uh, Davis is in the middle. That's so fascinating to hear. Um, And I was really interested then in bringing in perhaps the Antarctic Treaty system, um, because I guess that is very relevant for the discussion we're having around territory and the different countries that kind of claim territory in the Antarctic and what that really means in effect. So when that treaty was signed, um, I believe it was on December the 1st, 1959, um, you write that 12 nations were signatories to that Antarctic Treaty. Um, What is the status of that treaty now? How has that, it's probably a very big question, but um, in terms of the most important elements, how has that evolved well, the treaty is still in operation. Uh, it was negotiated to be a, you know, it, w- it wasn't negotiated just to be a short-term agreement. There was some hope that it would be a, a long-term agreement. So, yes, uh, it was the 60th anniversary last December um, of the signing, and it came into force in 1961. Uh, the 12 original signatories are an interesting bunch, uh, Argentina, Australia, Belgium, Chile, France, Japan, New Zealand, Norway, the Soviet Union, South Africa, Britain, and the United States. So this is a a motley crew of countries. Seven of those countries actually claim territory in Antarctica. So I've mentioned Australia already, and I've mentioned that Britain, Argentina, and Chile make claims in the Antarctic Peninsula, which overlap. And the other three are um, France, which makes a very thin, tiny, thin little claim, which actually sits in the middle of Australia's claim. Uh, New Zealand makes a claim um, to the Ross Sea area, which is to the south of New Zealand. And Norway makes a territorial claim, which is to the west of Australia's claim. Now, those claims exist, I mean, kind of for classic reasons, because of imperialism. Um, You know, the kind of, you know, if there's any piece of land in the world, an empire or someone has tried to claim it. And so in the first half of the 20th century, um, starting with Britain uh, in 1908 or so, um, you know, there were these successive claims to these wedges of territory in Antarctica. Remembering, I suppose I should tell people that um, 
really the first um, person to step on the continent was um, only at the end of the 19th century. So, um, and certainly in East Antarctica, uh, there were, you know, there was this burst of um, expeditions in the very early 20th century. So these claims only come to be in the early 20th century because that's actually only when exploration begins in Antarctica, on Antarctica. I mean, there'd been lots of uh, ships and sealers and uh, around the continent until then. And so the treaty, yes, the treaty still exists. And um, the treaty has a, just a few essential points, which is really easy to recite. Um, it, it, uh, it ensures that Antarctica should only be used for peaceful purposes. It states that there should be freedom of scientific research. It states that there should um, Antarctica should not have military activities and shouldn't have nuclear explosions or the disposal of nuclear waste. And to sort of guarantee all of this, it creates, uh, it created rather, it created a, a system of meetings by which um, signatories to the treaty would come together regularly to make decisions about uh, Antarctic governance, whether about science or other matters. Um, and there's actually um, a very complex and novel um, uh, article about territorial sovereignty. So these seven countries claim territory, but actually almost no one recognises these territories. So there's a, um, there's a very difficult position that a country like Australia is in. It believes it claims territory in Antarctica, but no one recognises it. <laughs> and in fact, the, the Soviet Union in the 1950s um, was simply, you know, establishing bases on territory that Australia claimed as its own without asking permission. And so um, under the treaty, there's this article, Article 4, which creates this system, a kind of legal guarantee that during the treaty's existence, um, it will freeze sovereignty claims. So um, countries can't do anything to improve their sovereignty claims and countries can't do anything to reject or um, counteract those sovereignty claims. So it's this kind of um, uh, working ambiguity that says, okay, you can keep claiming your territory, but it doesn't really matter. And okay, you can keep ignoring those claims, but it doesn't really matter. But we're really all working together for Antarctica. And why do you think that was built into the treaty? Was there a huge amount of um, conflict over, you know, who has what? I mean, yes, I think the treaty wouldn't exist if this kind of territorial ambiguity wasn't created. Um, Australia, for example, would absolutely not have signed the Antarctic Treaty without a kind of guaranteed recognition of its um, ambiguous recognition of its territorial claim and building a sort of framework to make sure that other countries couldn't counteract the claim. So it's really, I mean, this is, I need to remind people that the 1950s is absolutely the height of the early Cold War, mm. you know, reds under the bed, you know, deep fears of Soviet aggression across the whole world. Um, you'll notice that the Soviet Union is the only Eastern Bloc state in those original, original signatories. Um, you know, the Minister uh, for Foreign Affairs in the 1950s was worried that the Soviets would put a submarine base in Antarctica um, to launch attacks on Australia. And so, um, you know, this, uh, you know, intensely geopolitical moment and there's some sense that, you know, this place at the bottom of the world, which really only the scientists were going to, um, well, we should leave it to the scientists and build this kind of international architecture so we don't actually fight about Antarctica 
we'll just fight elsewhere, I suppose, is the cynical way of seeing it. <laughs> oh, it's probably good um, that that Antarctica is in some ways not as heavily in dispute given um, just how fragile it is, as you say. And um, I was interested to read uh, that in 2016, the Russian Navy resumed its Antarctic expeditions after 30 years. And in uh, your article, you do reference um, the Russians and Russia and its um, interest in Antarctica, particularly in regard to oil and gas, and uh, and not just Russia, but also China as well. And I was particularly interested to hear from you about um, their increasing efforts to uh, look for oil and gas and how that fits in to, to the legal framework that currently exists around Antarctica and, I guess, conducting those types of interventions. Sure. Well, um especially here in Australia, but, you know, across several Western countries as well, there's increasing worry about the geopolitical movements and developments of Russia and China. And that is happening in Antarctica too. Russia, of course, is uh, an original signatory as the Soviet Union. And uh, Russia does have an interesting Antarctic history, but an uneven one. Uh, I mentioned in that article that actually this is the – I was in Antarctica uh, for the 200th anniversary of the first sighting of the continent by uh, a Russian admiral, Bellingshausen, uh, sort of Prussian-Estonian Russian, sort of complex sort of early 19th century European history there. But, um, you know, he, on behalf of the Russian Empire, was uh, was circumnavigating the globe and was the first to see the Antarctic continent. And he beat a British uh, admiral, uh, a British sailor by a few days. Hmm. So actually, it's a really rich moment in which uh, Russia is, um, uh, as part of its general, you know, global geopolitical posture, which is you know, I, I put it as mischief making, but of course, it's a bit more than mischief making. Um, it you know, often very appears proud, is very proud to claim that Bellingshausen, a Russian, was the first to see Antarctica, and yeah. they used that actually. They used that fact in the late 1940s to insist that the US and its allies couldn't make uh, a separate agreement without Russia, without the Soviet Union for Antarctica. So it's really used that historic memory as a wedge at several occasions. The news about um, the Russian State Geological Agency searching, uh, exploring for oil and gas was a really interesting one. Um, It's probably undoubted that several countries have been uh, exploring for oil and gas uh, in the Antarctic continental shelf for years. The issue is that they announced it. Um, So uh, mining is banned in Antarctica under the terms of the 1991 Madrid Protocol. So this uh, this was negotiated... um, uh, by well, it was pushed for after Bob Hawke, the Prime Minister of Australia, and the Prime Minister of France rejected in the late 80s a a convention which would have regulated mining in Antarctica. Um, and actually, you mentioned Emma Shortus at the beginning of the episode, and Emma's PhD, fantastic work, was on the negotiation campaign to protect Antarctica. So mining is banned is basically the the simple point here, um, and. In economic terms, mining, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, oil, oil and gas drilling in Antarctica is surely decades off, or perhaps even will never happen. So the fact is that m- my interpretation is the fact 
that uh, Russia decided to announce that they were doing it. Russia's in a slightly different position, and I'll get to China now, in that Russia makes these big claims but actually has is not putting resources into its Antarctic efforts. Or, you know, their bases are de somewhat decrepit. Um, there is good work being done by Russian scientists, but, you know, it's very hard for them to be working at the same level as US or British or Australian scientists. China, on the other hand, has a lot of money and is willing to put uh, quite a bit of resources into its global scientific research efforts. At the end of last year, it launched its second icebreaker, the Snow Dragon 2. Um, it is, uh, over the last few years, it's been operating uh, a base in the middle of the East Antarctic ice sheet. Um, and, you know, and there's even, there was a report released yesterday by the Strategic Policy Institute here in Australia, you know, thinking about the rise of China in relation to Antarctica. And so um, China signed the treaty in the early 1980s. Uh, and in fact, Australia was very welcoming of Chinese scientists in the early 1980s and late 1970s, um, bringing them on the Australian expeditions, helping them do their glaciological and other research. But really, the, the, the issue with China has changed dramatically in the last few years with the rise of Xi Jinping and the much more sort of forthright position of China on the world stage. Um, the question at the moment is, will China participate in good faith in maintaining the Antarctic Treaty system as it exists? Which is a really big question and it's hard to predict. Um, in another part um, of the Antarctic Treaty system, um, in a part known as the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, um, China has been a bit of a break on progress for marine conservation and for stricter controls on fisheries in the Southern Ocean. I mean, this all just builds a bigger picture in which, um, you know, especially here in Australia, I would say, actually, it's very um, intense here in Australia, there is concern about China's position in Antarctica. Well, it's um, interesting because it kind of directly relates to uh, Australian Antarctic Territory, but I saw there was a development where Beijing, um, the CCP, the Chinese government, had put in a proposal to make a Dome A, which was a specially managed area within Australia's Antarctic Territory. What is that Dome A and wh why is China proposing that? Yeah, that's a really interesting case. Um, so Dome A is a very uh, is one of the peaks uh, or one of the highest points of the East Antarctic ice sheet. So there's a quite a lot of ice below it. So it's actually a really good place to potentially do ice core drilling. Um, so you know it's a very elevated point of the East Antarctic ice sheet. It's 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 you know hundreds of kilometres inland. So it's a very difficult site to get to. Um, so China's been operating there uh, for a few years. Um, uh, the, the specially managed area that you mention, so within the Antarctic Treaty, there's this sort of a system of area protection. Um, there are specially protected areas and there are specially managed areas. And these exist for various purposes. The specially protected areas exist, for example, to protect um, animal communities, you know, bird colonies, uh, um, seal, co you know, seal hauling up points. Um, and so they exist mostly to protect animals and to manage access to study sites, for example. Specially managed areas uh, often take in much larger areas 
and usually have several um, Antarctic Treaty parties as the lead managers. Um, one example is the Dry Valleys. So in um, in the area south of New Zealand, there's this really interesting part of the continent which doesn't have ice on it. It's deglaciated and they're called the Dry Valleys. And they, they are jointly managed by uh, several countries because lots of scientists study the area. And so it's really about managing access, making sure there's not excessive pollution, excessive impacts, and to make sure science can be done harmoniously. Uh, the asthma that China was proposing was China only. So that was sort of seen by the other treaty parties as a kind of unusual step. You know, why create this specially managed area, which is only one country? Um, there doesn't seem to be a need for such a specially managed area if you don't, if you're controlling the only people there. Um, it was seen, it's, it has been interpreted in Australia um, as a kind of offensive gesture against the Australian Antarctic Territory. But of course, China doesn't recognise the Australian Antarctic Territory and you know, I'll eat my hat if it ever does. <laughs> um, and so some commentators, I think, have been seeing this as a much more offensive gesture than it is. I think the, the, the gesture is really about testing the Antarctic Treaty system, not about testing Australia. Mm. It's about saying, will this system, which is, as you know, until it's still essentially a white man system. I mean, we can get into the entire history of colonialism and the efforts in Antarctica as essentially dominated by the Western imperial states. But until, you know, until the 1980s, um, when India and China joined Brazil to some extent, you know, this is rich countries um, controlling Antarctica. And, you know, I don't want to peddle the Communist Party line, but there is, you know, I think there is an interesting question of global justice and access to global areas that China is making, even if it's making it in a very ham-fisted way, that um, Antarctica is part of the global commons, they would argue, and therefore the Antarctic Treaty System should better reflect the fact that there are different um, aspirations for those areas. Um, just finally, Alessandro, I wanted to ask from a personal perspective, I mean, you've spent, as you said, about a decade looking at Antarctica and that's a really huge proportion of your working life dedicated to one subject area, even though it is a huge, um, vast area, as we can tell. But I wondered, given that you finally had the chance to actually go and experience it for yourself, um, whether there was anything that kind of struck you on a personal level um, at, that kind of you hadn't really considered thinking about Antarctica so deeply at an intellectual level, was there anything at a, an experiential level when you visited that you were struck by and um, that has left a mark on you? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's obvious that actually visiting um, was a really lovely and profound experience. I mean, I was really, I mean, I sort of two responses. I was really glad to actually go on a tourist ship as my first visit. Um, it might seem a sort of strange way of saying it rather than like, joining a scientific expedition because I try and remind people that um, the bulk of human visitors to Antarctica now are not scientists. They're not working on stations. They are tourists. And so this summer there were 78,000 tourists and I was one of them. And so I felt really kind of both personally, but, you know, in my analytical frame was really glad to experience it alongside people um, who are, you know, the great majority of those who experience Antarctica today. And so it was really interesting to be on 
you know, a cruise to see the sort of ecosystem of, you know, the society on board a cruise ship, um, the traditions of such a ship. And, you know, it was just, it was a bit of fun, and but it was really instructive for the way I think about that experience. The other really lovely thing about the cruise that I was on was that it uh, allowed me to see um, a part of Antarctica, uh, which I sort of have been slowly working on, um, because I'm trying to write very slowly a biography of a krill biologist um, by the name of Mary Alice McWinney. She was uh, an American, um, one of the, you know, a pioneering woman in Antarctic research and in, in Antarctic history. She was the first woman to go on uh, an, Antarct an American Antarctic research cruise. She was the first woman to lead a scientific station in Antarctica. And she did this really interesting work on krill before she died very sadly, young in the early 1980s. And in the late 1970s, she spent her career, much of it at Palmer Station, which is the US base in the Antarctic Peninsula. Now, we didn't get very close to the station, but I finally got a look at the island it was on. And I was it kind of, I've kind of felt silly that I hadn't looked at it, tried to get a picture of it before, because I hadn't quite realised how kind of beautiful and gentle, gently rising the ice sheet behind it was and the way it sort of loomed over this bay. So it was great to see the sort of marine environment in which she worked. Um, we didn't get to see the, bay, uh, the, the base because it was cut off by a little spit of land. And just to see this looming ice sheet behind it. And thankfully, the, su the sun came out as we were going past it. So it sort of felt, you know, beautiful sun rays through the clouds. So it was really lovely to uh, go through this area in which this um, this this great uh, uh, woman had worked in, and so that was really wonderful. Well, it's fantastic to hear that it's not just all about men, although it sounds like it has been historically dominated by um, men and and by nations. But I'd be really fascinated to hear about that. So I'm glad to hear you're writing a book about it. Oh, I'm trying my best. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Alessandro, for taking the time to uh, delve more deeply into what is um, a very interesting and also complex topic. And uh, it's just absolutely fascinating to hear about the history of it. Um, and I do appreciate your time today. And hopefully people can read your article. Um, and if they want to understand more, they could read Emma Shortus's PhD and also your book. Indeed. <laughs> It was great to join you, Amy. Thank you so much. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.